This episode is brought to you in part by Regent College, Vancouver, Canada. Experience God's call to a life more abundant with our one to two week summer courses. Sign up today at rgnt.net slash summer. For anything that we care about, that we have to humanize, you know, the numbers, the statistics, we have to create narrative. Part of building movements and creating change is building a narrative in which you start to understand that the other person is actually very similar to you, that they are also made in the image of God. Hey everybody, welcome to The Calling. I am Richard Clark, your host and editor for Christianity Today. Today on the show we have Jenny Yang, the Vice President of Advocacy and Policy for World Relief and the co-author of Welcoming the Stranger, Justice, Compassion, and Truth in the Immigration Debate, which is a book you can buy now. For Jenny Yang, the political debate over immigration and refugees isn't new. She's been with a humanitarian organization that focuses on these things for more than 12 years. Over that time, her calling has evolved and been given a much more urgent purpose, eventually leading her to the role of Vice President of Advocacy and Policy. Obviously, it's a time when political discussions about immigrants and refugees can come across as abstract and theoretical. So Jenny Yang obviously hopes to make the political feel more personal. This week on The Calling, she talks to me specifically about her relationships affected her politics, why her opinions on immigration are often written off, and what she would say to a young, eager college student who's anxious to save the world. First, I want to mention that The Calling is brought to you by Christianity Today magazine, which is really good. There's a ton of stuff in Christianity Today magazine about the subject of immigration, refugees. Highly recommend it. Um, If you subscribe now, you'll get 10 print issues. You'll get the tablet, PDF editions. Get full web access to ChristianityDay.com and online archives dating back to 1956. We've set up a special page that allow you to get a discounted subscription plus a bonus download created especially for our podcast listeners. It really is a special bonus download. I highly recommend it. We spent time working on it, and we're proud of it. You can only get that deal at orderct.com slash the calling. That's orderct. That's orderct.com slash the calling. Head on over there and subscribe. By subscribing to CT Magazine, you'll be supporting thoughtful, essential journalism and helping us to continue to produce episodes of The Calling every week. And here it is, my interview with Jenny Yank. You live in Baltimore. I do live in Baltimore. How long have you lived there? I've lived there for... About 12 years, and actually it's longer than that. I've lived there for, well, if you count school, Mm -hmm. I've been there since 1998. Okay. So it's been about 20 years. Man. Which is crazy because now that I think about it, I guess I've lived in Baltimore longer than I've lived in Philly, like the Philadelphia area, which is where I'm originally from. So it's grown on me. It's People see living in Baltimore as like uh, living in a city where... It's kind of like the mold that grows on you that you don't like it in the beginning, but uh-huh. you like it eventually. Um, and I think Baltimore has a bad reputation, but I've lived there and I've always liked it. I think it's a smaller community. It's, it seems similar to Chicago in that way, right? Yeah, it's a smaller community. I think there's a lot of uh, 
diverse areas of the city. I think it's pretty charming. It's a smaller city. Yeah. It's easy to navigate. And I've, I feel like the community there is very authentic. It's not pretentious at all. Sure. And I've appreciated that about living there. So, um, I live there with my husband, my one year and about 10 month old son, uh, who's, who's, um, really adorable. And awesome. it's, it's the three of us that live right 10 months old. He's a year and 10 months. A year and 10 months. Yeah, I so missed the year part. He'll be turning two okay. in August. My son just turned two. Wow. So it's just really like crazy because his first birthday was, oh my God, he's one. But two, I feel like they enter this age where they're the little, little boys. human beings. Yeah. yeah. And they're, you know, kind of talking. And I feel like a year and 10 months is when it starts getting fun. Really? And then yeah. ride it too. It really is a little bit of the terrible. Comes is it? In. No, he's had that for. I'm like, he's not like, he's, he's actively he, disobeying you right now. Because um, well, Atticus, my son, no is a lot. Like, he's no, no. Yeah. If he doesn't want to do something, he'll be very vocal about it. Right. Which it's actually fun though, because you can kind of understand if he doesn't want to eat anymore mm-hmm. or things like that. Yep. But um, you know, I kind of miss the times when he just was very like whatever, whatever about anything, you yeah. know. And so now he's a little bit more vocal. But each stage is is super fun, and yeah. it's fun to see him acquire new words and stuff. Awesome. So uh, at the beginning of every podcast, we ask everybody the same question. Um, What's your favorite food? What is your uh-huh. favorite food? Not really. No, um, I was like, I would love to answer that question. No, it's less uh, easy than that. Okay. How would you define your calling? Wow. Oh, okay. That's a <laughs> <laughs> I think I have a calling to to speak with those who are marginalized to highlight the stories of injustice and to challenge the church okay to really live out the gospel in its fullest sense yeah and i think for many years it's been within uh world relief which is the organization that i work for and and i felt at that organization that it really has has comported with what my calling has been and the fact that there's an organization that lives out to really uh, assist people in, in situations of extreme poverty, right. but also challenging churches to think biblically and theologically about what it means to love your neighbor, I think has been a place where um, I've thrived. And so, yeah. um, so that's been my calling and it's, it's really led me to do various things at the organization mm-hmm. and also personally as well. Yeah. And um, yeah, it's been a fun ride so far. When did you say you discovered that, that calling? Well, I think, I feel like there's, into adulthood you live out the fullest callings and it it takes on different seasons but I've always felt like there was a side of me that was kind of feisty and Mm. and wanted to always speak out and and agitate people that challenge element yeah Yeah. I remember um my youth pastor was telling us about um about about you know people who are who are uh poor in the city in like Philadelphia and Mm -hmm. how we should care for them and um, I remember like pulling her into a conversation with my mom and, and, you know, just talking about how like we need to be doing more to like serve people in our communities. Yeah. Poor. And I was like, Oh yeah, no, I, that, that's true. And I was just like, no, but we need to be doing something now. Like let's do this and that. Uh-huh. And I remember, um, also just, um, you know, whenever I'm in restaurants or outside in places where I feel like people are not tr- being treated well, like I'll always say something. And so I always embarrass mm-hmm. my husband and right. my family sometimes are with me, but I always feel like if people aren't corrected in their thinking and, and how they treat other people, that's what perpetuates either unkindness or untruthfulness. And yeah. I just think that's a huge challenge for us today. And so, um, and I think when I was overseas, I lived, um, 
for some time in Spain studying and I remember seeing a lot of issues of racism there and I remember in, in certain situations where I would speak into those things and actually um, do so in a way that um, was speaking with the people who were being victimized. And what sort of uh, racism issues were, yeah, were so, you seeing over there? So Spain is pretty homogeneous. Um, I mean, the U.S. is segregated, but it's a lot more diverse, I think, ethnically and, mm-hmm. and racially than in Spain and in many parts of Europe. And when I was there, they were actually dealing with a lot of um, African migrants and migrants from Latin America who were mm-hmm. coming in and um, they didn't want to be necessarily welcoming to these individuals. And so I remember I was riding the subway and there was a group of young Spanish teenagers that came on and they pulled out their spray cans and started graffitiing on the walls, get out of my country, black people in Spanish. And it bothered me so much because there was a young African woman and her child that was sitting on the train and I could tell that they were really uncomfortable. And so right, I was going to say something to them. They got off the train and, um, and then everyone else kind of went about their, their lives as if they were, then nothing had happened and Mm -hmm. that's actually what bothered me even more than the racism because i feel like how could people have witnessed such blatant racism and not have actually spoken up or or said anything to this mother who was probably feeling very very vulnerable yeah and so that was just a very concrete instance for me when i knew that it wasn't right for us to just be silent in instances of racism or weird question were you one of those people that didn't do anything no i actually went up to that mother afterwards and i said something like um those guys are so stupid and i'm you know and you know are you okay yeah and she actually didn't say anything to me but she was just like she just kind of nodded her head right um and then yeah but um, but no, but no one else said anything to her. Right. No one else said anything to these Spanish teenagers. It's just like it didn't happen. Yeah. yeah. And so I just, and uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not Spanish and I'm off, you know, and I was, I know my Spanish is broken. And so I, I felt a little bit hesitant to say anything, but at least mm-hmm. to this woman I did. And, um, and then the Spanish teenagers, they actually got off the plane right after they did that. And so yeah. they just scrawled and then left. And so, and you know, there's definitely instances where I've, I've personally experienced racism in my life and. I know what it feels like to feel like you're constantly an outsider or a foreigner who doesn't fit in. Right. And because of those things, I think it is important to always feel like you're in a community of people who are standing alongside of you and actually yeah. really um, and uh, speaking with you and, and defending your, your cause. What's your current role at World Relief right now? So I oversee all of our advocacy and policy work. So okay. my job is pretty much to track what our U.S. government is doing as it relates to their systems um, or uh, laws and policies that are impacting the people that we serve both overseas and in the U.S. And so my job is to understand what they're doing to try to influence that and also translate all that information into what are um, into ch- what churches can be doing and individuals to actually influence that process. So I feel like I'm a conduit of information from both ends. So uh, how long have you been in that role? Uh, 10 years, actually. 10 I've, years. Yeah. So originally I started doing a lot of work around immigration policy in the U.S. and refugee policy. And then I have expanded my portfolio where now I'm doing a lot around international humanitarian issues. Okay. And advocacy around those issues. So your last uh, year or so must have been really stressful, right? Like the stress must have ratcheted up yeah, quite a bit. Yeah, I think it's been it's been busy because there's, um, I think, when you're looking at changes in, <clears throat> in systems and structures, it's really important. Um, but it's also important to look at 
grassroots levels and, and relationship building as well. Because when you talk about if people are being discriminated against, it's within systems and structures. Yeah. Um, but it's also within relationships. And I think a lot of times, uh, especially for followers of Christ and people who belong to the church community, uh, we should be the people who are at the forefront of some of these conversations on justice. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes we're the ones lagging behind yeah. because we've elevated either our own security or our own wealth or comfort above building relationships with people that are different than us. Mm-hmm. And I think because of that, um, we've lacked relationships to inform our thinking about policies and systems that impact the marginalized. Right. Um, but I also think that, um, you know, for a long time, churches have been really worried to engage in politics. And I can understand that because for a long period of time, we've almost been wed to singular issues and to a singular party. Um, but I, I do think that there's a consistent ethic of life that cuts across a lot of issues in which we need to be speaking into a lot of issues as Christians. Um, and that um, being partisan is being different than being political. And mm-hmm. I think we have a calling to be political. Yeah. But being partisan means being wed to one party and thinking that they have all the answers, which is not necessarily true. Right. So being political, um, knowing how to do that effectively, um, and then always trying to uh, build relationships on the on the grassroots level is an important part of being a good witness, I think. Yeah. This episode is brought to you by The Truce Podcast. I'm sure you've been there. You're at an event, a dinner, a small group, and someone says something like, If you're a Christian, you have to vote Republican. Huh. That raises an interesting question. How did evangelicals like me get to the place where we just assumed we'd all vote one way? This season on The Truce Podcast, we're diving deep into the complexity of the 1970s and 80s to understand how evangelicals tied themselves to the Republican Party. It's a story that involves murder, corruption, redemption, and our need to be heard. I'll be talking with celebrated historians like Rick Perlstein, Pulitzer Prize winners Francis Fitzgerald and Jesse Isinger, and some of the best guests I've ever had. Truce is the show that uses journalistic tools to look inside the Christian church. We press pause on the culture wars in order to explore how we got here and how we can do better. Subscribe to Truce anywhere you get podcasts or listen at trucepodcast.com. Would you say um, there was ever a point of time in your life where you doubted that calling um yeah well you know it's i don't think i've ever felt like i've figured out fully my the fullest of my calling i mean sure i think right now i'm in a season where god's given me certain gifts and skills and i'm using that for the for the things i feel like he's called me to do now yeah but it, it seems like me- right now you'd have a pretty clear idea of what you're here for yeah (laughs) and i think you know in five to ten years it could look really different but i think sometimes calling i mean callings change um and um i think my sense of calling has developed over years and experience and Mm -hmm. i never knew 10 years ago that this is what i was going to be doing but i knew a general direction that i wanted to go in and i think especially for a lot of the listeners out there who may not know what your calling is i mean don't be afraid or don't Mm -hmm. don't get anxious about it because sometimes it takes you taking steps of faith into experiences that maybe are experiences you never wanted to 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 get into yeah to really form how god's gonna actually use you in the future because i think even for me when um i worked in politics for a little bit and then Mm -hmm. i started working at world belief and i never thought i would be at a christian nonprofit organization for as long as i have been 
Um, but I've stayed here for over 12 years at World Relief. And in that, I've, I have found my calling to a certain degree. Um, but it's callings are always evolving. And I think it, it really is God using the fullest of her gifts and abilities and experiences to serve him well. Yeah. Um, so th- those, uh, I think my calling can change, but for now it's, it's been interesting to see it develop. Right. Uh, you're talking a lot about this, this, uh, the fact that politics and faith, like aren't necessarily diametrically opposed, right? Like those two things can go together. I'm wondering if you ever feel a tension though, because there is clearly like for some people, there's a tension between faith and politics. I'm wondering if there are moments where you do feel that tension where it gets a little uncomfortable or awkward. Yeah, I think uh, it is hard because sometimes when you disagree with someone's position on a particular issue, a lot of people assume that you're not agreeing with that party when a lot of times you're just agreeing, disagreeing with that policy. And right. so, or not just a party, but a person. And so if you're disagreeing with a president's uh, you're not agreeing with the president's policy. It doesn't mean you're against the president. It just means you're uh, disagreeing with him on that specific decision that he's made. So it's really important for us as we engage in these conversations to not boil down a disagreement into a personal or pol- or a partisan issue, but to actually see it from a perspective that actually it's it's because I believe it's for the betterment of our common good or for for people who are marginalized to be in a place where we actually are speaking into these things um, from a from a policy perspective. And so, um, I mean, just as an example, with the executive order that President Trump issued around suspending the immigration of people from certain countries, um, you know, we did speak out against that executive order because we didn't feel like it was rooted in any kind of reality that refugees were a specific threat to this country. Um, and a lot of people criticize us for that because they said, well, you're criticizing the president and he's just trying to do his job. And I, you know, support the Mr. Trump as our president and I do pray for him and his team. Um, and I don't think this that our it's disagreement over his executive order means anything that that's personal to him. But I do think that it's a disagreement that we've had um, that we've been speaking into. And so. Um, I think I think that's really important to distinguish that people don't take it um, as a personal or partisan issue, but it is related to policy. Sure. Uh, on a personal level, mm-hmm. what would you say is like the biggest struggle you've had as you've worked out this calling? Yeah. Um, well, for me right now, I have uh, one almost two-year-old son, and mm-hmm. I travel a lot, and I think just balancing out – um, you know, where, where should I go? Should I bring him with me? Yeah. How do I spend time, quality time with my family, but also spend time with, um, uh, and, and really doing the, and speaking and trying to, um, challenge people's thinking on certain issues. Mm-hmm. How, balancing that I think has been always tough. And I think there's seasons for me where I'm really busy, but then there's other seasons where I'm not as busy. Yeah. And so I think that I think has been really challenging for me. Um, cause I do miss my family whenever I'm on the road. Right. Um, but then I know when I'm home as well, there's just a desire with, uh, within me to, to go on and to meet different people and to speak into situations when I can. And I think the other tough part of my, um, um, my calling has just been knowing that people are going to be very personally criticizing me and attributing mm. what I'm saying and what I'm doing to aspects of me 
because I'm like Asian American or because I'm uh, with a certain organization. I mean, there's a lot of assumptions about why I'm doing things. Yeah. People questioning my motivations because it doesn't jive with what they're comfortable with. What kind of things do they assume? So, for example, um, when I'm doing a lot on immigration, you know, people have said to me, oh, you're only talking about immigration because you're Asian American or uh-huh. or, oh, you must be speaking up for undocumented immigrants because you must have some illegal immigrants in your family. Right. And it's like, well, neither of those are true. I mean, maybe to a certain degree, of course, I'm Asian American and that immigrant story, my parent immigrant story has definitely shaped my understanding of the immigrant experience. But, yeah. um, but I actually speak from a, primarily as a, a follower of Christ. And, yeah. and so it's offensive almost when I feel like people are, are questioning my motivations as to why I'm speaking into some of these things. Because I think on a personal level, I've experienced a lot of racism and a lot uh-huh. of 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 people getting very personal with me in a way that's been um, a little bit uncomfortable. Um, but it's a I weird th- assumption too that right that 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 would be uh, that would discount your argument that you come from that perspective. I guess that yeah. that itself comes from a very specific perspective. Yeah, actually, when I first started engaging on the immigration debate. It's the last thing I wanted to do because mm. I felt like people were going to look at me and, and actually say those things, which is, oh, she only wants to talk about these things because she's an Asian American. Yeah. And so because of that, I've basically felt like, well, um, uh, you know, and so I actually didn't talk about my experience or anything like that. Mm-hmm. And I remember I went to a Christian college and then I went into a class and it was a class for mostly retired individuals. Mm-hmm. Who, and I was the only non-white person in that room. Um, and everyone had, like, white hair in that room. Yeah. And, you know, we started talking about immigration. And there was just a lot of tension in that room. Yeah. But then someone asked me, you know, what's your personal story? So I talked about my parents and how they immigrated here. And that completely changed the dynamics. And yeah. ever since then, I've actually started sharing my personal story because there's nothing more disarming than you talking about your personal experience. And so, you know, the, the very thing that I thought was going to be um, a de- um, something that detracted from my story or mm-hmm. from my position was the very thing that actually amplified my position. Yeah. Um, and so, but in the beginning, it was something that I didn't think was going to be an asset at all. Yeah, but I like I really, that. Yeah. Because you're, you're really just humanizing mm-hmm. the story itself, mm-hmm. like this political idea that's big and abstract. You're humanizing the people that come here, the people that this impacts, right? Yeah. Yeah. And so I think um, for anything that we care about, that we have to humanize, you know, the numbers, the statistics, we have to create mm-hmm. narrative. Yeah. And I think part of building movements and creating change is building a narrative in which you start to understand that the other person is actually very similar to you, that mm-hmm. they are also made in the image of God, that they share the same aspirations and values that you do. Yeah. And anytime we start talking about issues as issues or numbers as numbers we really just detract from from the power of the human story and the human experience yeah and it helps create relatability and and empathy really more than sympathy yeah um to really be in that kind of position yeah when it comes to working out your calling what would you say is like your deepest fear um i think i guess i don't well I guess a deepest fear may be that, you know, I can't do the things that God has called me to do and, Mm -hmm. or the sense that, can I really be faithful? Like that's, that's, I think what I struggle with a lot is 
I fundamentally, I don't want to be known. I don't want to be out there. Actually, you know, even this public speaking is sometimes something that I, I, I get really, I don't get nervous, but I, I, I stress out about it a lot. Yeah. Anytime I speak anywhere because yeah. I'm like, God, why did you give me the stage? And what, what is it that you want me to say? And it's a huge responsibility. Right. And so I think as I, as I walk into the things God opens for me and as I try to actually, um, really pray over the things that I'm going to be saying. There's always a sense, like, I just want to be faithful to the things that you have given me responsibility for. And Mm -hmm. God, am I representing you well? And so, you know, I can't speak into what 10 years is going to look like Mm -hmm. or anything like that, but I'm always asking God, like, I just want to honor you and help me to honor you. Like help me to really speak truth into the things that are, are, um, are in the gospel and help me never to stray from the word of God and, um, and to really encourage people mm-hmm. more than condemning them. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah. Uh, if you could get into a time machine, mm-hmm. go back in time, step out of that time machine and introduce yourself to yourself. <laughs> what would you tell her? Uh, uh, um, I would say, that God made you who you are for a reason and, Hmm. and don't think that any part of you is a bad thing, but use all of who you are to love life and to love people Mm -hmm. and, you know, live in community. Um, don't forget to love and appreciate your family and your friends. And when you have that community, it will help you live out what God is calling you to do. Yeah. And, you know, the best is yet to come (laughs) (laughs) and, you know, things get better and, um, yeah, live your life in community. What was, what was, what was she going through (laughs) that you had to say the best was yet to come? Well, things will get better. Yeah. Well, I think it's constantly a struggle of, of, um, of like, I remember when I first graduated from college, you feel like you have all this experience and mm-hmm. you have all these skills and like, but you can't get that dream job when you're like yeah. 22. Yeah. And I remember like thinking, gosh, what is it that God is wanting for me? And like, where, like, where am I going? Like, what am I doing? And I, even now when, when I'm like, I'm in my thirties and then now I talk to, to college students that are in college and they're all struggling with the same thing. And I have to tell them, you know, don't be afraid to start small and to start somewhere because right you're going to get to the place where you need to go, mm-hmm. but no one can start by immediately. Like it actually takes years of building up experience and um, relationships and, and all of, and skills to eventually do the thing that you feel like you're dreaming of doing, you know, 15 yeah. years from now. So it's crazy going to college for four years and just and thinking, thinking about like, stuff. I know everyone thinks, I think everyone thinks that way. I run yeah. out of college and it's not to say that um, young people, I mean, they have, distinctives right i mean they're like super youthful and energetic and they have um innovation and they're creative Mm -hmm. those are all assets but at the same time you know when you want to be you know the president of your own organization at 22 i mean you can be did you but no i didn't but i'm saying like (laughs) there's um people want to jump to things without doing the hard work of of sacrificing and of of doing the hard work so right so just reminding people that it's a journey You've been listening to The Calling. Jenny Yang is the Vice President of Advocacy and Policy for World Relief and the co-author of Welcoming the Stranger, Justice, Compassion, and Truth in the Immigration Debate. 
You can find her on Twitter at Jenny Yang WR. That's at Jenny Yang WR. You can check out World Relief at World Relief or worldrelief.org. Don't forget to rate and review the show on iTunes. It is super awesome to, to do. I love it. The Calling is produced by me and Morgan Lee. It is edited by Jonathan Clausen. Theme music by Lee Rosevere used under Creative Commons 4.0. Every day, CT testifies to the reality that Jesus is alive, transforming his world and bringing his kingdom to bear. Jesus transforms, CT equips. Make a gift to our nonprofit ministry with a gift of $20 to provide 150 more people with redemptive storytelling, global perspective, and thoughtful podcasts. Give now at morect.com/equip.